0: Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam's social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Dr. Walid Mohammed Musad. Dr. Walid is an internationally recognized scholar in Islamic studies and human development. His academic and traditional training have accorded him the opportunity to work with communities worldwide as a teacher and project driver. He is currently the chair and scholar in residence of Sabil Community, a community-oriented service organization focused on cultivating and nurturing Muslim communities worldwide. And of course, you'll find a link to that in the episode notes. Additionally, he is the director of Muslim student life at Lehigh University. He has also worked for the Taba Foundation, where he managed educational projects in Belgium, Denmark, and Kenya. Dr. Walid completed degrees from Rutgers University, Fatah Islamic Seminary in Damascus, Al Azhar University in Cairo, the University of Liverpool, and a PhD in Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in the UK. Dr. Walid on a personal note is one of my uh, oldest associates and friends. He is somebody that I look up to tremendously as a matter of fact him and his wife are always examples for me and my wife whenever we're thinking of family related decisions, I don't mean to embarrass uh, you Dr. Walid but you know that's the case we always look up to you guys and I owe him a lot because he was the one that helped me very much early on in my decision to want to study the islamic science seriously he helped guide me t- towards egypt towards al-azhar and to certain certain and specific teachers uh, who we have in common i'm very happy that he gave me the time uh, and sat down with me to dig in deep to some of the issues involved in studying and some of the thought issues that are facing the muslim american community so without further ado please enjoy this conversation with dr Walid. Sheikh Walid, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing well, alhamdulillah.
0: Alhamdulillah. Uh, so I, let me just jump right in. I, wanted to, I have a couple of areas I wanted to ask you about, but I wanted to go back sort of to the beginning of how I met you, which was uh, I was really uh, contemplating I wanted to study abroad. And I had met you at a function in New Jersey. You were still in New Jersey at the time. And you gave me some advice. And I've always known you as a reference point for, okay, what should I do next? What do I want to study? How do I study? I know that maybe that's like not in fashion right now, but I would like us to go back, the two of us in memory, and talk a little bit about that journey because I think it's important that we have a record of it, that you know what it takes to study, uh, particularly your journey, which I know was, which was very interesting, uh, and maybe we can start by just the beginning, which is what what caused you to feel like you wanted to, you know, switch. Your, you were an engineer, correct?
1: Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, did.
0: so what made you want to switch from that, you know, to go study Sharia in Islamic centers overseas? Uh.
1: I guess it likely began. I uh, I used to go to some of these uh, national conferences back when they used to do them in the Midwest. I remember one was in Kansas City, and maybe another one was in Ohio. And uh, I remember the, the bazaar is the thing I remember the most. I don't remember the lectures that much. And uh, as I'd walk through the bazaar, I'd see the different books, and uh, I saw these books in, in Arabic that had these... Uh, I know people can't see us, but I see the books behind you in your library and they look like that, you know, with these kind of ornate uh, covers on them and leather bound and uh, you know, I remember I remember Tafsir ibn Kathir is but that was one of the first ones I saw, the sieges of ibn Kathir and, and other books and I opened them, and I'm like and I always wondered like like what would it be like to be able to read this? Hmm. And and even though I'm the son of Egyptian immigrants and I, I did do the Kind of the, the common, or maybe not so common anymore, uh, weekend study school and Arabic school. And I, I was yeah, fairly fluent in terms of speaking, and I, I could read to some degree, but not to the level of, you know, I was a teenager, not to the level of, uh, of reading these books and understanding them, and getting through them. And then I also felt like the uh, that which we were listening or hearing in many of the mosques in America wasn't really giving us that picture. I felt something, I felt like there's this big, huge sort of uh, understanding of Islam that somehow is not being conveyed to us. I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know what it was exactly, but I felt like we're only getting a very small piece of the puzzle was the lingering feeling that I had most of the time. And uh, it was not really until perhaps I heard people like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, who spoke at one of these national conferences, and uh, he spoke in a way that I hadn't hear other people speak before, and he was bringing Arabic poetry and examples and language and kind of also talking about contemporary issues and weaving it with that, and I didn't really hear anybody, you know, the the the, uh, the style of, of, uh, of lecture or of, uh, talking about Islam before that was, to me, felt very narrow, number one, and felt a little bit divisive, and it made me feel guilty about living in America to begin with, like, somehow, uh, you know, this is not a good place, and we're something, and then everybody else is something else, and, you know, we shouldn't really have a relation like this, and then it's always talking about events overseas, and rarely did I see things being addressed about what was happening with us as a a community within America, and I I always, even though I was young, I felt there was some sort of disconnect, And, and again, I couldn't put my finger on it, but... When I, when I heard Sheikh Hamza speak, then that kind of started to make me think uh, that there's, there's got to be more to this. And I remember thinking this even when I became maybe more committed to Islam in college. Um, like, is this it? I just pray five times a day and fast, Ramadan, zakat, and then I click all the boxes and then what, what's, what's after that? What do I do with the rest of my time? Uh, how do I supposed to live and so forth? So this kind of reached a, uh, a critical junction, I would say. Uh, after college i i started working i got married i had two children quite quickly within uh, a year and a half of being married two boys and uh, i was working very what would consider to be a very good job in, in new york city uh, in the heart of manhattan working for a now defunct wall street firm but back then <laughs> before the 2008 financial crisis it was uh you know, one of you know, the top uh, Wall Street firms, and I was working as an engineer in the tech division, uh, managing the networks, troubleshooting networks that brokers would use to uh, to make trades. And uh, for that um, that time, I was making a, what would considered to be very good money. And I only have to work three days a week; it was like a shift thing, and I had the other you know, a lot, four days of the week off. So it was almost an ideal, I think, situation for many uh, if they would look at it. But uh, I felt something also was just like okay. I can continue on like this, and uh, maybe eventually I get that supervisor, manager, corner office, uh, and make double what I'm making. And then, then what? Uh, what am I? What is it that I'm going to impart to the children that I'm trying to raise? And you know, what type of communities are going to look like? And I, I was looking at the local community in New Jersey where I was living, which is not the same as my parents' community, but at a different town. And uh, you know, I was probably at the time considered one of the more learned people, and I didn't know anything. So it seemed like the blind leading the blind to some degree. So all of these things, I think, came together. And then I heard some of our friends had begun to uh, go overseas and study in Egypt and Syria and other places. And so this piqued my interest. And uh, that's kind of when I, I felt like I, uh, I had to do something and make a change. So, so we're,
0: we're very similar because we have the same background. Uh, our parents are mm-hmm. Egyptian immigrants. Uh, but I did not know until now that we also have that in common, that we also made this decision um, at a very peculiar time. I mean, you were even further advanced. I was in medical school, so I left medical school to do this. But you, you went all the way. You graduated, you're working, you know, mashallah, you have this job. I did not know that it was to that extent. So, and, you're, and you had kids. I, I was married, but I didn't have kids at the time. So, I mean, I know what, how my parents reacted and continue to react, but my question is for you: How did your parents take that? I mean, Egyptians tend to be uh, generally pious people, and, and religion is considered right. a good thing for mm-hmm. them. But Yani, yeah, I mean, not not to this extent, where you know where you're just going to walk away from a job and a career, uh, you know, to go back.
1: Yeah, I guess to use the word shock might be understatement okay. <laughs> in terms of how they <laughs> reacted. Uh, and uh, it wasn't like my fa- my parents weren't religious. My father, especially, uh, who passed last year, Allah, he, Allah. Was, uh, he was also someone who established, helped establish the Muslim community and established a masjid, and he was extremely active in that. And so he had respect for ilm and he had respect for knowledge, and uh, he was always involved in actually bringing different scholars from overseas. And So it wasn't like that was something he didn't know about or wasn't aware of, um, but I think he was looking at it, more well, from a practical side of, you know, you have two children and you have to raise them and you know, you're gonna know, go and then what are you gonna do after that and all that, that sort of thing. But um, I remember after we had left and they I, I did not leave though without their blessing. So they, they did okay. They you know it's not like I defied them and said, I'm doing this no matter what you want me to do. So alhamdulillah it was a great, great, great blessing that they they uh, they were okay with it after a while. And when I went, and I remember when... Uh, and throughout my studies, my parents would come visit. So when I was in Egypt initially, they came. My father especially. And then when I was in Syria, they also came. My dad came to Syria. My mother not back to Syria. But uh, as they came, and, and I remember one conversation, I can't remember where it was exactly, but my dad had said to me, uh, no, I think you did the right thing.
2: Oh, so, mashallah.
1: You know, that, that, that meant a lot uh, at the time. And uh, so... Uh, I think they began to understand um, that they, I think, throughout this whole period, they were a little nervous. Uh, Not so much just because of, you know, making ends meet and that sort of thing uh, later on. and We're still continuing to have children (laughs) throughout this process. So we we, we got up to five eventually. Uh, And, uh, you know, some of them were born overseas. Uh, My daughter was born in Syria. And then my my last uh, child, my son, Ahmed, was born in Cairo. 2002, while we were there, so this continued to happen. And uh, uh, but they they still remained supportive. I, I mean, my apartment that I was using in Cairo was my parents' apartment. Uh, they supported us also financially, and so I think uh, they were uh, they they was as best as I could have imagined. I think in terms of that, uh, even though initially it was it was uh, I think quite a shock uh, to them. Uh, but I, I felt that they saw that I was serious about this and and I think maybe in the back of their mind They thought oh, I'll go for a few months. I'll get sick of it. I'll come back You, know, mm-hmm. you couldn't imagine that I would be able to stay that long But alhamdulillah things work out. So so when
0: when I met you <clears throat> I think you were still in the Syria phase or or you had just maybe just finished uh, What? how many years were you in Syria was it four? Four years. Really. Four. So what was that like? I mean, I, I was blessed to also visit Syria when I was uh, living in Egypt. Uh, I would only just go for like a weekend or a couple of days. I, I never really lived there. And I got to meet some of the Mashaikh, but not nearly as, as many as you. Um, what was that experience like studying in Syria uh, versus studying in Egypt? Because I think for, for students that are into that, you know, they will notice the, an obvious, there's an obvious contrast. There's some similarities, but some contrasts.
1: Well, I think I was in Damascus mostly. This was the late 90s, and it was really unlike anything I had ever experienced before. Uh, There was, I guess, by any means, uh, many, many students of knowledge in Syria at the time from everywhere, Uh, Westerners there, uh, who were not as many as the other students. Uh, I I think the Syrian government had a pretty open policy about Arabs in general, so uh, anyone who had an Arab passport basically can come to Syria and stay as long as they wanted to. So we had a lot of Algerians, North Africans, uh, Moroccans, uh, the Egyptians. Particularly, though, I think there were some restrictions because I think if they opened that door, they would overwhelm. It would be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but but in terms of other Arab nationalities, uh, I made quite a few friends from North Africa and Jordanians. Uh, uh, also, some were there and so forth. So. Um, but the the environment that we we kind of had our own sort of community, so to speak, that revolved around uh, studying and uh, keeping the company of, of the scholars and the mashayikh and visiting them and that sort of thing. And so that was really unlike anything I've seen ever. Uh, we didn't. That wasn't really the case in Egypt. Egypt was kind of more formal in terms of connected with Azhar. and maybe if you're lucky, you can find a teacher who can kind of give you some private time, but. Not like in the manner that we saw in Syria where there were, or in Damascus, where uh, many of these uh, scholars were giving uh, lessons uh, like daily in the masjid that anyone could attend. And occasionally you could find a private one uh, that's a small group for advanced students and things like that. So, and at the same time, I was also studying in the mahad in the seminary that was affiliated with Azhar at the time. So it was very busy, but it was very mubarak, and then many people had their families with them. Uh, the wives and children. So there was a community that kind of also developed around that as well. So it almost seems like a dream now thinking about it because obviously Damascus is not that anymore. Probably nowhere in the world is really like that anymore. So we were were quite fortunate, I think, to be able to spend the time that we did.
0: So when you study, at some point, you have to make certain decisions. Like uh, for fiqh, for example, you have to decide, you know, what method am I going to study? or if you want to study a different science, you know, what teacher or what area am I going to focus on? So I, I've known you always as, as you know, uh, the Maliki. Uh, and I know, um, actually, it was actually because of your recommendation that I was blessed to attend some classes in Egypt with Sheikh Tahir who is, you know, the senior most Maliki jurist in, in Egypt, uh, in the Derdir Mosque, no less, which is, you know, definitely uh, something I hope you can, you can talk to us about. But how... I mean, I know it's kind of, it sounds odd and it sounds personal, but I think it is important to understand, like, how you make those decisions. Like, I made the decisions to be a Shafi'i because I knew that Imam Shafi'i was buried in Egypt. So when I was young, I was like, well, I guess that means I'm a Shafi'i. It was as simple as as that. And then Sheikh Nuh's translation of Om the tasalik came out like, oh, look, I'm a Shafi'i, it's so easy. I mean, it was not not like I had a dream or a vision or or anything like that. So how did you make some of those early decisions, particularly, you know, what madhab to study and what kind of teachers to stick with?
1: Well, one of my initial teachers uh, here in the States, uh Libyan uh, surgeon, Dr. Aboukir, uh, he never really told us, so I'm teaching the Maniki school, but that's what he was doing, basically, because that's what he knew. So that always kind of uh, reverberated with us, well, resonated with us.
0: This is before you and left?
1: And also, before, this is when I'm, uh, you know, the weekend school. This oh, is, uh,
0: wow. Okay, mashallah.
1: 14 and 15 and 16. Okay, mashallah. Um and then also before I left, after these conference experiences, I would pick these books up and just try to read them, uh, and you know, use like a Hans dictionary and, and get through them. One of the books that I read earlier or started to read was uh, Al-Fiqh al Khalm al Arba," I think, al and uh, or Jaziri is it, yeah. So he, um, he he you know his style is to mention all four. Uh, opinions or dominant opinions uh, ostensibly in each mas'ala, in each issue. And I found myself like invariably like nine times out of ten or more I read the Mannekei opinion like hmm, I I like that one. (laughs) Or or I felt like, it felt like the one that that felt, you know I don't know, anyway, the one that resonated with me. Mm. So uh, and I read the biography and uh, I just felt like his approach was very um, you know, kind of a balance between nas and ra'i, you know, between scripturalism and also between, um, I guess, rationalism for lack of a better word, and kind of looking at masalih and looking at uh, contextual issues and and things like that, and uh, it, it just appealed to me overall. So um, that's kind of, I think, how, and I was able to even maintain that even Syria, because there wasn't really Maliki uh, Olamat in Syria is basically Shafir Hanafi, but uh, there were some senior Algerian students I was able to study with at least a little bit, so uh, until I uh, started studying with Sheikh Ahmed Tahir in Cairo after Syria.
0: So without getting into like, mentioning anybody by name or anything like that, do you think, is it fair to say that there are students who unfortunately don't make those decisions early enough and they sort of bounce around from thing to thing and then end up almost wasting their time?
1: I think for every serious student that we came across, there were probably 10 who were not. Wow. Who were more mm-hmm. like, uh, let's call them, uh, and they're not bad people, but it was more like you know, in the in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, it was there was this sort of romanticism associated with going overseas and studying with the sheikh and you know, then coming back to the West in your garb and your thobe and you're like, now the sheikh So I think there, there was kind of romanticism with that and people kind of, you know, were very enamored of this and uh, so you had a lot of, lot of large numbers of people, especially from the UK uh, and the US coming, and I would say in and out, not staying really that long or not really studying, but more kind of just like hanging out uh, and not, I don't think, anyway. It uh, didn't appear to me that they were that serious are putting in the work uh, to, uh, you know, to kind of make something beneficial happen for them. But I think they benefited from the experiences in general. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing at issue then was that when they go back to their home countries, and now they're, you know, sheikh of Islam because they spent, uh, you know, ten weeks studying Arabic at the University of Damascus, and then now they come back and because they can read Arabic better than everybody else somehow. So. But outside of that, I think, um, you know, a lot of students, they didn't also have guidance. Uh, it's difficult. You couldn't really point someone and say, this is the program you need to go in. Mm. You kind of had to piece it together yourself, in a way. So even if you were formally registered in a in, a, in a mahad or a seminary, um, that alone probably was not enough either. You still have some time and want to do more than this, so. Uh, people had to kind of, and, and if you were not, if you didn't have the structure of a seminary, which was many, many, well, actually the majority of people I would say, then it was just like okay, study with this person or that person, and you know, oftentimes the the, the class would be canceled or some or postponed, and so there was some level of frustration with things like that. But if you at least if you had the structure of a seminary, then you were at least have something consistent, uh, even if the other things didn't work out. So I, I felt a lot of people who didn't have that structure. Kind of uh, Not everybody, but many, I think, fell through the cracks.: uh,
0: The people death. that you said you know, weren't serious. do you think when they go back to their home country, uh, do they do more harm than good?
1: That's hard to say. Uh, I would hope more good than harm. It depends uh, on what they do when they get back. Um, well, I think if we look at our situation today, I don't think that's really the issue. At least back then, there was this idea of some sort of authority associated with study um, and a level of proficiency. Now I don't feel that's the case. I feel it's more about popularity and uh, charisma and your reach and your followers and your likes and, and this sort of thing. And then that then becomes determinant of, of uh, authority. And so you can have, like, for lack of a better word, a celebrity yeah yeah, a preacher, and maybe studied a little bit, not enough, uh, but people see them as this authoritative figure because uh, they feel like, well, if so many people, if they have a million likes on their Facebook page, then they must be good or they must be authoritative or they must be bad. So I think that's kind of the greater danger right. Really.
0: <clears throat> if somebody came to you today the way I did so many years ago and said, I really want to go overseas and study?" I want to. I don't want to do what you did. I want to learn. I want to sit at the seat of these teachers. And what 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 advice would you give them? If you could give them like five pieces of advice. Well, first of all, would you tell them to go? And if you did, what 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 are like the things they should keep in mind?
1: I would tell them don't go and go to Potomac, Maryland, and study with Dr. Gohari. <laughs> That's the first thing I would say. If you're on the East Coast. No, really, because. Um, it's becoming more difficult uh, to study overseas. And now in the age of Corona, and I say age of Corona, because I don't think it's going to be a fleeting thing. And All of a sudden, a month from now, it's gone. I think it's going to be take longer than that. And we may be talking not just months, perhaps years, a couple of them. So things are going to be different. And travel is going to be more difficult. And actually finding people to be face-to-face and give you that time is not going to be easy either. So, um you know, there's a simple rule that the argument used to have that you exhaust all of the possibilities in your locale before you think about leaving. And back when you know, we were students, or when I was a student in the late 90s, it wasn't that difficult to exhaust everything around you because there was nobody. Mm. But you, one can't make that argument now. I think there are enough local initiatives and efforts going on and enough people who have studied overseas and I think can give students a really, really good uh uh, course, uh, at least a good background uh, before they think about, you know, going overseas. So that's what I would like to see happen. Uh, that people take advantage of, of uh, what's available to them before they think about. Um, and and then you know, most of the mashaikh that we studied with the older ones, a lot of them are retired or passed away. You're really going to be dealing with people more or less of our generation, and it's arguable whether you're going to find something much better there than uh, you would find here.
0: Now, another way I know you is you, uh, after you left or after you graduated or you finished that part of your life, and I don't mean the conversation to be chronological, I guess that's just the way it's happening, but you, you, uh, how do I phrase it? You, I mean, I always joke and say, you know, I'm the token Muslim, right? (laughs) But you've been involved in a lot of projects, uh, mashallah, with maybe, let's say, Islam uh, trying to manifest and interpret Islam in in, in modern realities, dealing with mod- modern issues like the Danish cartoon crises, which is something that mm-hmm. I I was partly involved with with you, and other type of things, whether it's creating a think tank or whether it's talking about Islam vis-a-vis modern politics, you know, trying to smarten up how we speak about Islam. it's in other words, you didn't you didn't go to the seminary and come back and just start your own seminary or just you know, Continue that tradition, you do teach, I know that you do t- teach, inshallah we'll get into that But you are also involved And uh, that's an aspect that I'm also interested in, I think a lot of the listeners are interested in What, what sort of theme, without having to necessarily peg it to one institution that you worked with or, or, or another But what, what type of lessons did you learn from that experience? What worked, what didn't work, was that important? Uh, is that just not the way of the future? If you can summarize, you know, that aspect of, of your life, what would you say to that?
1: I mean, if we have to, uh, this is related. I think if we have to characterize the time period we're living in now, in terms of, let's say, Islamic intellectual legacy, uh, we are still very much in kind of a reaction to the colonial period. I, uh, that would be how would I I would put it. So that means most of the efforts we've seen have been efforts to deal with um, the post-colonial period, which, uh, to sum up an upshot, would be modernity, more or less. In other words, uh, and not just modernity, and we don't just mean that we drive cars and Teslas, and I mean the philosophical underpinnings of all of that. Uh, And we're still struggling to do more than react to this. So while I was growing up, uh, it always did seem very nakedly reactive. Uh, you know, and it was, you know, I've heard khutab in the United States in the, in the 80s, in the early 90s, about how all the Muslim world has to do is build the right missile and armaments, and then, you know, things will be okay after that. Uh, so a uh, very active. Sort of, uh, of way of looking at things, and uh, and I think it, it led to the strand of, of extremism that we're seeing. and People actually, you know, taking those words and trying to put them into action, and led to the disaster that we, we've seen uh, for many of the young men who uh, feel trapped and uh, and feel disenfranchised and uh, disillusioned, and so. They think that this is the easy way to press on some button and they obliterate themselves and a hundred other people somehow is going to bring a positive result. And that came out of, I think, that very reactive way of looking at things and not really having a good understanding of the context and what's really happening. And I think before we can actually have a a way to contend with issues, we're we have to understand what's going on. And for all of the good that I, I learned with many of my teachers uh, in the Muslim world, uh, I can't say except maybe a few, I can count on my fingers, that I could comfortably say understood what's going on. They, they, were, they were good about, uh, or I, I benefited from them in terms of understanding Islamic texts and uh, and rules and the fiqh and, the, you know, the meanings of, of the Qur'an and the hadith and sunnah. And the, that without that, there's no starting point. But in terms of, uh, as the ulema say, in order to have an evaluation or to, to stay ruling about something, you have to conceptualize it properly and understand it. Uh, this is where I think that our counterparts in the Muslim world were, were severely lacking, and I still think still lacking, right? When, when, um, when American foreign policy forays into the Muslim world were somehow compared to the crusader wars, of uh, of the middle uh, medieval ages, there's a disconnect there. You're not understanding what's, you know, what, what's going on, and that was kind of the paradigm um, that was there. So, I felt it was important, and and the institutions I've worked with, and they felt the same way, that we got to get a handle on understanding what all this is about because modernity is everywhere, and it's in the Muslim world, and it's affecting its institutions and the way people think and the way that they interact with one another, and it affects their dreams and their aspirations, and so forth. So there's a certain uh, philosophical underpinning there that uh, if you don't quite get it, it's going to be very difficult to really know how to contend with it, and not just contend with it, but to um, to live your life as a Muslim uh, living under that, that reality. So uh, that's why I always felt like just teaching a, a book. Uh, just teaching a book that, uh, you know, as is, without contextualizing it. Uh, like Ahya Ulum al for example, of al-Ghazali, which is a masterpiece, and uh, it is probably the easily most influential, or at least top three or four influential works that have ever been written for Muslims, uh, obviously specifically in Tazkiyah and spiritual purification. But even that, it, it needs some contextualization. You need to be able to kind of be able to understand who he's speaking to and, and you know, what is the context when, when he tells people that it suffices you to have just one round loaf of uh, bread a day and a, and a glass of water and then you'll be on the road to spiritual purification. I can't just, you know, say that to you know, young suburbanites uh, who are, you know, get mad if they don't get their vante latte with oat milk, you know, in in just the right temperature and so forth. So uh, it's important then to be able to to, uh, contextualize all of that and to put it in its proper place and then look at the kind of big, holistic, comprehensive picture. And this is what I think in in, in the Muslim world, and even here stateside, we're severely lacking. So there's often this disconnect uh, of how we talk about Islam, Um, how we present it, how we speak about it, how we even act ourselves, Mm. right? Uh, Some people still think if you don't dress in a particular way, that's indicative of someone maybe who dresses in Karachi, then someone who dresses in Washington, D.C., then somehow you're doing something not quite right and you're not following the sunnah and and this sort of thing. And so that's, you know, that's a disconnect of understanding of what what would these nusus, what is the, the text of the Quran, and what they actually mean in the text of the ulama'at and the scholars and, you know, what is the context that they were working under and, you know, who were the khusum, who were the, the people that they were countering at the time when they presented those arguments and why were they countering them in such a way. And, you know, a lot of our theology um, is based upon counter-argument. But basically, the whole thing is a counter-argument against uh, groups that would cause dispersion or... or uh, uh, misconceptualizations about what Islam is And what it isn't And what uh, who Allah is and what he is not That's basically in the kalam or, or, or theology in general And So if if you're using that science Use the tools of it Use the discipline But to kind of echo exactly uh, Without any sort of Little bit of analysis uh, Critical analysis of, of what you're reading And where it came from I think it's a, it's a mistake um,
0: So in other words st- Studying you know, in the traditional fashion, the way you did, that's just one step along the way. In other words, you can't just you can't just do that step and then just park there, and then just regurgitate that. In other words, you you need to take that and use it. You need to take that and and develop it and and face the challenges that we're facing. Is that would that be correct?
1: Or absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, it's a big mistake just to stop there. And our our predecessors said as much. People like Imam al qarafi and others. They said that you can't just take the Nusus or fatawa that are old and and uh, or from previous time periods and just, you know, implement them as is. And even Imam Malik, when people came to ask him uh, Fatawah and questions from faraway lands, oftentimes he was reluctant to answer. And when he was asked why, he said, these people are going far away. And what if, you know, I change my mind about something or I have a different look about it? How am I going to find them afterwards? Hmm. And uh, early on. Well, I think the Khalifa Harun rashid uh, wanted to make the muwatta kind of the state book. And uh, he refused. And the, uh, the the common explanation of that is, as he explained to him, he said that there is khilaf, there's difference of opinion amongst the scholars about what, you know, not everything in the muwatta is is the lone opinion that's acceptable. There are other mm. opinions that are acceptable. And I also think, and I agree for this in my dissertation, that, uh, I think he also felt that uh, the state should not get involved in such matters either, right? To, you know, you, you should leave these this kind of um, uh, religious interpretation and in affairs. It should be something that has a healthy room for uh, khilaf and for difference of opinion and, and dissenting opinions. And, you know, let whoever can present the best evidence and best argument and the most convincing evidence, this is what's going to determine what's authoritative not a state authority that's going to say, this is the way it is and that's it. So, um, you know, and, and that's context. So I think it's, it's, it's vitally important that we don't just stop at the level of the text of the and then say, you know, everyone has to do like this, or this is the only way of seeing things. And, um, you know, and I've heard from many of our ulama uh, that even the the transactional law that we read now that are, is centuries old really hasn't been updated since then doesn't, it doesn't suffice our needs now. At all and uh, that we this kind of needs a whole new sort of uh, uh, a fresh look uh, especially looking at all of the, the things that are happening with us so and, and that's a lot of work that is yet to be done so
0: you mentioned your thesis uh, i had been meaning to ask you uh, is that being published
1: yeah I am uh, uh, okay. trying to get it into book form as we speak inshallah, so, and the, so, the, so.
0: the focus of the thesis or the book inshallah
1: uh, uh, it's it's actually, you mentioned Imam al-Dardir earlier uh, So I, I studied with Sheikh Ahmad Rayyan in the mosque of Imam al Reading the books of Imam al So as you can guess, the subject of my presentation was Imam al-Dardir so, um, And I was looking at him more or less as a figure Who was on the cuspice of, of early modernity mm. He died in 1786, uh, Miladi. Over one of the Hijra, so really before
0: Napoleon right, comes into Egypt,
1: right before Napoleon comes to Egypt, a decade or so, and so that um, uh, he kind of represented the last sort of classical scholar, not just uh, in terms of uh, the works that he wrote and uh, scholarly positions he occupied, but also the societal position that he occupied. Mm. Uh, you know, as kind of interceder for the masses and someone who had the ear uh, you know, of, of the rulers, they listened to him and they, they paid respect to him, and as they did to his predecessors, where you can make as the argument after um, the Napoleonic invasion and then um, the reversal of that with uh, the installation of Muhammad Ali uh, Basha uh, as leader who led one of the uh, Ottoman armies that were coming to liberate Egypt from the French with the British help. Everything changed after that. So um, I wanted to kind of look at this idea of, well, what did it look like when there wasn't so much uh, outside uh, influence uh, that came into, uh, and Egypt was kind of the first one that went right after that, North Africa, and then we saw colonial uh, you know, uh, influence into uh, Syria and Lebanon and basically the whole Muslim world, Indian subcontinent but Egypt was, was, was the first one on the shores of uh, Alexandria that the Napoleonic, uh, Napoleon's fleet landed, and then it, it kind of took off from there. So I see then Imam as, uh, al-Dardir as, as pivotal in, in that. And also he represented, in terms of the scholarly tradition, um, also the culmination of all that had gone before him. So much in the way that we study now, wasn't kind of a monolith. There was a, there was a development. Mm. Uh, the, the the style of the books that was written, the manner that they were written, the whole uh, commentary gloss genre uh, that had obviously developed way before Mendeleev, but kind of reached its apex or its zenith, uh, I think, in his time. Uh, I also look at that in in, in the dissertation. So um, I think it's kind of looking back so that we can look ahead, and I, I tried to show that they were not staggering that they were not just copying what came before, rehashing what came before, they're actually looking at what came before and then applying it for their time uh, in the manner that they felt was applicable and most beneficial for their time. Mm. And, and that's the same thing that we need to do for our time. And it may be different than the way Imam al did it, or different than the way Imam al-Ghazali did it, but nevertheless, we're applying, or we should be trying to apply the same principles in, in doing that.
0: One of the things I know about Imam al Dirdir... Uh, and also, Sheikh Taha is that uh, Tasawwuf is an integral part of that of that tradition. I mean, Imam al-Dardir himself was uh, Sheikh of the Khelwatiya, and I know that uh, that Sheikh Ahmed Rayan is also Khalwati. And uh, Tasawuf is, as we know, is, is part and parcel of the Azhar tradition. I mean, without without getting into your personal life, can you tell us a little bit or speak a little bit to the to the importance of that as a student, as you know, people that have gone abroad to study. How Tasawwuf helped form guide uh, you along the way of your academic studies, and then maybe examples of of people who did not, you know, heed that advice and kind of left that part, and maybe, you know, talk a little bit about what that was like for the, for them.
1: Well, if if we define Tasawwuf simply as Ihsan, as uh, uh, applying the principles and ethics of of the dean in in the best way that you can. And that there's a particular methodology or structure to go about how about doing that. Then, then this is what the soul is. And I think, you know, I think it's a al-Shadri who said, "Whoever well, does not delve into this matter of ours and dies in this way, it's like he died and he is upon sin." So it's not, it's not uh, the one who has a rejection of the formalism of of Sufism that's problematic, but the the goals of it, the objectives of it, hmm. which is to. To live a life of Ihsan. and and I know it's a contentious issue in terms of some of the formalistic aspects of the سلوف and some of the practices that have um, have have been kind of uh, brought into this formalistic uh, presentation of the سلوف. And, and and to be honest, I don't always agree with all of it, nor do my teachers. In fact, maybe mel- much of it we don't agree with, but certainly the conceptual framework and the structure of it and the methodology. Uh, is essential and important, and I would say it's, uh, it's the essence of the religion, it's the essence of the teachings of Muhammad. So Just because it has this name that came later on and maybe a particular structure to it, well, Arabic grammar had didn't have a formalism to it or a structure during the time of the Prophet, so them, but still we study Arabic grammar via its masters, uh, like Sibawayh and Ibn Hisham and Georgiani uh, and, uh, and others so the same by the same token uh, Tasawwuf also has its masters like uh, uh Memo Junaid Junayd Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, Sheikh Abu Hassan al-Sadu Sheikh Ibn Khushban Ahmed al-Rifa'i and, and Ibrahim al-Nasuki so all of those names are associated with uh, with uh, uh, tasawwuf and uh, because they gave kind of a a structure to the whole thing a way to go about doing it and not just abstract uh, Concepts. So I think, you know, whether one uh, becomes affiliated with a particular Sufi tariqa or not, that's another issue that's related. But I don't think it's the it's the main issue. The main issue is that you be dedicated and committed, especially as a student of knowledge, to uh, to not to neglect this very essential aspect of the deen. So it doesn't just become this laundry list of do's and don'ts and uh, without really imbibing uh, the meanings uh, that are contained therein. Uh, these meanings of Ihsan, as you know in the hadith of Jibir, تعبد الله كأنك and To worship Allah as if you see him, but if you can't see him, nobody sees you. So this مشاهد uh twin aspect of Ihsan, to see God in everything, or at least to know that Allah sees you, the muraqadah, this is essential. And that is a spiritual thing. That's not just an intellectual acknowledgement. That's actually living that, and actually to get to the point of living that, it's not just enough to read it in a book. You need to actually uh, have a program of spiritual study, as it were, or spiritual discipline that's going to get you to that point. And the scholars and mashiach have to this. Is what they do, and uh, so you know, to not avail oneself of that is 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 very uh, problematic. Uh, And and the reason you wouldn't is either because you think you don't need to, which is bad enough in itself, or uh, you think you can't find the right person to help you with that, uh, which also is is problematic because it's having like sort of this having a a bad opinion of God that somehow this very important aspect of the deen is neglected and there's no one to help you along with this. So... um, you know, and those who did not really avail themselves of this, I, I you know, I, I don't think it's it's going to be uh, a good outcome because this the masters themselves they say unless you have someone helping you to look into your own shortcomings, you will, rarely will you be able to find all of them yourself because hmm. we we, te- we tend to just you know embellish uh, how we see ourselves and we never think of ourselves as deficient in anything. So you actually need this kind of neutral third eye to to help you with that. What they call rounat in nafs, you know, the you know the, the, the deceptive way of the, of the ego and uh, its machinations. You can't really pick out, and it's very subtle, especially in um, those who are religiously committed. So the bane of the religiously committed is they think, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm praying. I'm fasting. I'm doing like, I'm nice to people. What could be wrong? Mm. Right, and then they they fail to realize that there's there's subtle. Uh, uh you know little kind of windows that iblis finds his way into that you know babyjib for example to to be self pleased is a is a path down to spiritual destruction in and of itself uh to the degree they called it the incurable spiritual disease
2: as
1: the masters say so that that requires uh quite a bit i think of of uh A spiritual training and this is where Tassauv comes into uh, it's quite important
0: Was Tassauv always in the background when you were studying? Mm -hmm. I mean I felt when I studied it was always there, no matter the subject that I was studying
1: I believe so, I think uh, the teachers that I studied with they all uh, uh, believed in it, Uh, I can't call any of them who were like what we call munkirin munkir would be someone who just completely says this has no basis and it's not important Uh, Some may have been affiliated with Sufi Tariqah, some may have not, but all of them, I think, in general, uh, supported the idea of uh, or the study of Qasuf as a discipline. It gets a bad name or a bad rap because people think it's some sort of movement or sect or some kind of, uh, you know, fifth column within Islam uh, and separate from it. Then this is where people then have apprehension about it. uh, But that's that's not the case in terms of the, the true... Practitioners of it. It's part and parcel of the deen. You can't read a verse of Quran except there's something that the soul has a uh, madkhal that has something about it or a hadith of the Prophet. So, because there's always a spiritual ihsani. And that's really heaven maqsood, right? This is what this is the goal, this is the objective, not just the outward formalistic application, but where is your heart when you're doing it, right? <laughs> Right. Allah doesn't look just to your forms and your bodies, but He looks to your hearts and your deeds. So it's not just an kind of outward aspect, and the soul is looking at the aligning of the inner with the outer.
0: So I want to jump to uh, Seville because uh, I know that this is uh, something that you've put a lot of time in, and I I want to read back just a quote that you've you said in one of your videos. You commented on on uh, why. Well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If I qu- quote you wrong, but okay. you comment on one of the the problems or the challenges in Islam in North America. You say that it's quote event focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really caught my attention because in the beginning of our conversation, when I asked you what made you want to study, mm-hmm. and you were talking about the conferences and being in you know the bazaar and and looking at the books, a lot of your descriptions I could almost take those descriptions and and describe Islam. In America today, like that, maybe not much has changed, unfortunately. Uh, so, what what do you mean by its event focused? Just can you talk a little bit more about that, and then how uh, your your the philosophy behind Sabil is trying to address that?
1: One of the things I noticed when I was living in Syria, and I think to some degree also in Egypt back in that time in the '90s, is kind of the um, the uh, the ease uh, or uh, I don't want to say in English exactly but lack of tukeluf and a lack of uh, again formalism in, in terms of the way people dealt with one another
2: hmm.
1: you know um, you would go to your grocer or go to your barber or you go and it would be your grocer and your barber and you know you have relationships with these people uh, it's not just um, I, you know the cashless self checkout at uh, Target or Walmart and you walk in and out. You don't talk to anybody. You can literally live in the United States today and not deal with a single soul. You may even work a nine-to-five job and actually never talk to anybody. Mm. And just everything is electronic and you don't even have any sort of dealings with people. And uh, and then I feel like then we have these vast deserts of time where people live like that and then we get together for an event. So whether, whether it's in, in the Muslim community or even... Uh, outside of this impunity, you know, in 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 the American society at large, uh, people do that with their day, and then they get together at night and maybe uh, a place where they can drink alcohol together, hmm. um, and then they go home, and then a uh, large arid, you know, desert time, nothing happening, and then that. And I think I don't think that's uh, that's healthy. And in the Muslim community, we we kind of tend to do that. A lot of effort focused on um, we talk about Islam a lot. And what it is, what it isn't, how we present it, and who's living it? How do we go about actually living this? And I felt, uh, in in my experiences in those small communities and neighborhoods in Damascus, people were living it, you know, without this formalism. And there was this kind of blessing in the way that they dealt with you, and you felt the sense of uh, fraternity and care and trust, I would say, also. That was just you know, literally, you know, colored everything in, in, in society. So it was pleasant just to go outside and, and walk around, and you're always going to run to somebody who's going to strike up a conversation with you or offer you something to drink or something like that. And, uh, you know, it felt like a lived uh, Islam. And, and this is what I imagine, you know, our early periods of Islam looked like in, in these communities. Whether it was in you know even in major cities like Baghdad or Cairo or Damascus or even in and villages outside of those main cities, there was this sort of communal life um, practiced sort of Islam, and I think that's what what kind of was lacking. We we tended to focus on these kind of retreats and 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 um, short intensive courses. People come for a few weeks or a few days, and then invariably at the end of these. These couple of weeks or few days, and then we give our closing uh, advice. We always have to say, Well, you know, it's been great, but go home and persevere. And, and you could see the sometimes agony mm. and distress mm. on people's faces, knowing that now they have to go home.
0: It's and like painful. Is, it's like a
1: It's pa- Right. I've been pain there, there. It's so, painful. <laughs> and even painful for the teachers. Yeah, too, it right? hurts. So, uh, so I I felt like we need to do something different. We need to be able to continue this all the time. And so one of the things about Sibil when we uh, we started talking about it, is we want people to feel like every day, not every day is a retreat, but every day is something where they're doing something and feeling connected. So I, I think the the uh, what do you call it? The uh, not the slogan, but the kind of the uh, the key words that we used was. Uh, uh, Connect, live, be.
2: Hmm.
1: So you you have you know, uh, uh, and, uh, and then, then and then uh, then uh, Then you will be as you want to be. Hmm. Right. So you have to have ta'alluq with the principles, the ethics, and the people of the deen. and you have to live those those meanings. And then then you will truly live. Right. Then you will truly be living, as it were. And, you know, so we find some evidence of this in the hadith. You know, the one who mentions Allah is like the one who is living, and the one who doesn't mention Allah is like the one Mm. who is dead, and so forth. So, uh, we want to kind of be living and breathing uh, this mushahada, muraqaba, ihsani aspect in in all aspects of our life. We don't want a separation of the mundane from the sacred. Everything is sacred. You can sacralize everything if that's how you see your life, that's how you live your life, you know, and These are kind of, you know, we're beginning by teaching these concepts and meanings, and hopefully we want to move into um, a later stage where we are hoping to uh, revivify communities all over the world Uh, within themselves. They form their own communities, and and, and they begin to uh, have more not just an individual practice of these concepts, but a communal.
0: So I know there's the website. I'll make sure that I, I make a link to that in the episode notes. There's the YouTube channel. Is there anywhere else online you'd like me to we direct have face, people?
1: We have a Facebook page too, but each one, any one of those you'll find connection. Okay. So, so the Facebook or the website, you'll, you'll find that.
0: Yeah. So another thing you say in the in the intro, which is very chilling, is you say, quote, we are orphans in this world. And I felt... I said that, huh? You did say that. <laughs> okay. and, I, and I felt so much okay. despair... Uh, I mean, I think you're right, but I mean, it's just so, uh, um, it's just shocking to face that reality that I think one of the things that we don't realize is how we are alone in, in many respects. Like you said, our lifestyle is causing us to be alone. You know, unfortunately, there are many people then that are just suffering and they're alone and we don't even know that they're suffering. I think many people are on the path of self-destruction. They might not even realize that. Uh um. Do you think with what you're trying to do and, and other people's efforts, do you think we have a chance of saving ourselves from that?
1: Of course we have a chance. If we didn't believe that, then why would we still be here? So I, I think we do. Um, I think there are challenges, or rather say there are challenges rather than having a kind of defeatist attitude. but uh, many, many challenges uh, lie before us, but I don't think these challenges are any greater than any of what our predecessors have to face. Mm. Uh, the only difference is, uh, you know, as the Prophet ﷺ mentioned one of the hadith talking about the companions, they had those who were able to help them. Mm. And we don't have anyone to help us. And that's why one of our deeds is like 50 of theirs, even to the surprise of the companions. They couldn't mm. believe that. Because they said 50 of ours or 50 of theirs. Mm. He said, no, 50 of theirs. Right? And the Prophet ﷺ described us as his brothers mm. when he said, mm. Ishtaqtu ila khwani. And they're the Sahaba, they're the companions. So I think Allah SWT knows about our situation. I think Allah tells the Prophet about our situation, so he knows it too. And um, I think we can only do in as much as we are capable of doing. And, you know, and that's why I talk of, uh, you know, we have to uh, get back to where we were and live the glory of uh, Abbas and Baghdad again. And I think all that is nonsensical, because that's their, that's our predecessor's, Asked. that's what they did mm. that's not us really no. you know, when we say we who's we here that's them that's not us
2: mm.
1: we have what we need to do and we have our uh, you know we try to live up to these principles and ethics and, and we try and then the neta'age or the results Allah subhanahu is going to determine that is it going to look like a uh, you know a glorious greatest Islamic not just Islamic but greatest city in the world at the time like Baghdad was in its heyday maybe not but Islam doesn't need to function properly, uh, or, or should I, I should say, uh, it's not limited to functioning properly in that particular sort of scenario.
2: Hmm.
1: Islam can function as a minority, it can function as a majority, it can function even when it's being oppressed, and it can function even when it's in power. And we've seen all of these different uh, scenarios throughout our history. So to say that the solution is... We must be the majority. and must be empowered, power. must have the upper hand for Islam to function properly. It's a misreading of history at best. That's not actually true.
2: Hmm.
1: And we find, you know, many cases where that wasn't the case. So uh, we just have to—and the vast majority of people who came into Islam did not come in through any sort of uh, militaristic campaign. Go ask the people of Nusantara, the people of Indonesia and Malaysia, and the people of East Africa. And, and, and West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. That's not how they came in. This so, uh, you know, they came in with dealings with nice people, with good people and people who were good to them and people who were kind. Certainly this is accessible to us. So if, if that's accessible to us, why are we doing it? And why are a small group of us is insisting that there's only one path Really, to uh, to nudge the or to inform people about Islam and this sort of we must have the upper hand, and that's actually a very modern attitude. You know, that's that's the bane of the of the, moder- of the modernist, that I have to be. It's a it becomes a paradigm of power hmm. rather than a paradigm of knowledge. Hmm. So the paradigm of power is is a modern one. We're all vying for power, right? And even the way. Struggle in the United States is being characterized today as struggle between different groups trying to get their piece of the pie and trying to get power. And this is how increasingly how things are being defined. it's it's a it's a path to to spiritual destruction, most certainly. But what if we made about a paradigm of knowledge and especially self-knowledge? And self-knowledge needs to knowledge of the divine, which is the true knowledge. We, that's always accessible. No one's going to stop you and especially today, no one's going to give, you know, some sort of big, put up some big, you know, uh, physical ideological wall to stop from doing that. We can st- this is the thing that still remains, but yet we don't seem to be, you know, realizing that or taking advantage of that or leveraging that to, to the best of our abilities. And we're just, you know, falling into this whole power paradigm of vying of, of groups for one another. And then we just become just one of the other groups that's vying for power. The
0: buying piece of the pie. So, CD, I know I know that you uh, you travel a lot. I know that you you've had many experiences in the country, also overseas. Uh, mashallah, you've taught you know all of these places. What would be if I asked you like, what are the top three to five needs that you think uh, like the modern uh, Muslim minority community needs? Because we, we think sometimes okay I know what these people need I'm gonna go and like tell them but but oftentimes when you get there you're like oh you know they don't need any they, they don't need any of this stuff they need something else and it's humbling you know uh, but I know that you you know more about this than, than I do w- what would you say are those needs based on you know your own experience
1: um, well each place is a little bit different but I think in general uh, the Accessibility of sound knowledge is atop of meat everywhere. Hmm. Uh, still, we are very confused on, on some basic, I would say, not just micro issues, but macro issues. Uh, you know, concerning about Islam and how to live it and what's important in terms of priorities and what does a religiously committed Muslim look like. And does that somehow incompatible with modern life? Do I need to give up everything? And these are questions we still get all the time. So I think that's, that's a vital, vital need, and we're not meeting it. Uh, we're not meeting that need. And in the vacuum of not meeting that need, uh, then we find where this sort of subversive kind of uh, power identity politics then, I think, uh, in, in many instances, uh, uh, you know, fills that vacuum, fills that void. And then Islam just becomes some sort of uh you know uh, celebratory cause for those who want to be who want to be committed rather than a way of life mm. and I think this is happening a lot, especially in the United States also with many of our young people um, I think also uh what they need is um, just some easy, simple examples to follow, uh, in, 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 the aspects of their life of raising children and of community life and of how to interact with relatives. And, you know, these things also seem to be quite a struggle for, for many. And it's due, I think, not to, not just lack of understanding of STEM but also the, the, the environment, the situation that we find ourselves in, we live in a very fractured, alienating society. Uh, and very consumerist and very superficial and very soul-crushing, often soul-crushing. And I think the first step is to realize that's where you're at. That's what you're living in. And once you do that, then I don't see why you would not be willing to sacrifice some of our future comforts uh, in order to go beyond that, to transcend that. But to try to convince someone of that, you know, even though you live in a nice suburb and you have uh, ample food and two refrigerators and you know, a manicured lawn, but uh, there's something else to life, you know, unless they see that, uh, it, it, it'd be difficult to kind of you know, to convince them that maybe there are some things that are worth more than this. Um, but this is their dominant cultural paradigm that we find ourselves in. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know if I can say there's something else besides that, but those two, I think, are very, very... And I think especially the first one, once you have some knowledge, um, you know, one of the things I think, Talabatul uh, and student of knowledge, sometimes they get into the trap of thinking, they have to do it all. Mm. And, I, and I see the example of our, of our teachers, they're really planting seeds. Right, So you're not the one who's going to necessarily build a community garden or uh, find alternative entertainment sound wholesome options for the community use but rather what you're most likely going to do is plant the seed and people who are going to do that hmm. and, and then the creative people amongst them and those who have the aptitude they're the ones who are going to run with it and and that you should be very happy and quite content to do that rather than trying to to feel like we have this you know overall overarching and I would even say totalitarian way approach to things and you know, we have to do a complete makeover, and I'm going to do it this way and this way. Again, a very modernist idea. Rather than let people be, but just bring out the best in them. And I think this is basically the essence of the prophetic mission. The Prophet ﷺ, all he did, and, and not to belittle what he did, but this is a great thing, he brought out the, brought out the best in people. Hmm. That's basically, if I had to summarize it, he brought out the best of humanity. In other words, humanity has this within them, but sometimes it needs a reminder A warner, uh, uswa, hasana, right? A good example to bring that out from them. So, if we're doing prophetic work or we're trying or we claim to do that, we're trying to do that, then we need to be trying to bring out the best in people rather than just making them our aides and our students and serving us. In reality, we're serving them. And if you're not really serving them by bringing out the best in them, then what are you doing? If they're always relying and dependent upon you for every little decision they have to make in life, right, this sort of spiritual codependency that we often see as the the norm nowadays, then I think you've done a disservice to them. You want them to be able to make decisions on their own. You want them to be creative. You want them to live by Islamic principles and don't have to return back to you in every little single life decision that they have to make. And um, I believe this is what the Prophet ﷺ did. Uh, He brought out the best in people. Um, so I hope to try to do that uh, Despite our many shortcomings And, and deficiencies Or at least to add to that
0: Inshallah, inshallah. See, it's been great talking to you, I, you It's been an hour I, I want to be respectful of your time So usually what I do at the end Is I ask my guest if there's any advice I think what you just said was was great advice But I'd like to give <laughs> you the last word It could be something silly, it could be a quote. I know sometimes we've been in a gathering before where Sheikh Hamza made everyone recite some poetry. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily do that, (laughs) but uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with, a thought, a question? It could be completely unrelated.
1: Uh, Well, you kind of put me on the spot. Um, I just, uh, I think people... Uh, don't lose hope you know I think it's easy to lose hope when you look at the circumstances around you Uh, COVID-19 and uh, you know all of the economic repercussions that go along with that and all this uncertainty obviously that people are now facing that they're not used to and so we kind of feel like what's going to happen what am I going to do and maybe the whole point of this is not what I am going to do but what will be done with me? As Ibn Al says in the Hikam, as you know, you know the the Aqil, or the, the intelligent person, wakes up in the morning and says, "What will Allah do with me?" Rather than saying, "What will I do?" Hmm. So it's it's really about turning things back to Allah Subhanahu ta'ala. And he also says, if you want to have hope, then look what comes from Allah to you. Hmm. And if you want to have fear, then look what what you give from yourself to Allah. So we want to upend the paradigm. We don't want it to be about what am I doing, what am I giving, what am I going to change? But avail ourselves of the divine destiny and the divine decree and the divine lot and the divine mercy. And live your life as, you know, a dedicated, committed, selfless individual, and we will see all of this good come. Certainly the situation we face now is is not any graver than what the Prophet faced or the companions. Um you know, what they faced was much, much greater than anything that, that, that we're looking at right now. And this is actually the default mode of the dunya. People don't realize that. Mm. We've perhaps had, we've been lulled into this kind of false sense of uh, prosperity and security over the past few decades. And we think that, you know, you know we, we've, um, we've fallen for the promise of linear progress that modernity promises us. That mm. we're always going to be making progress and being constantly better. No. History has shown us it's more cyclical. Yeah. Day for you and the day against you. So well, we may be going down into the down cycle now uh, to some degree. And everyone has an individual sort of cycle. Then there's one on a community level. Then probably there's one on you know, a global level. And these are all kind of working. Uh, maybe semi-independent of, of each other. So... If we look to our great yani much of the great things that were done in this ummah, which you could say happened in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries of Hijra, which is kind of sometimes referred to you know, as very productive time. This was in the wake of the Crusader Wars and the Mongol invasions, where, where cities like Baghdad were completely annihilated. it's yeah, so, a so very good point.
0: Of, yeah, I rarely make that much, connection. Yeah,
1: Much of the hadith that we could yeah. have known about was destroyed in one year, in 1258. In, in the sacking of Baghdad by by the sons of uh, Genghis Khan, so um, you know, and who lived during that time? Imam Nawawi, wa Imam uh, Ibn Khaldun, and uh, you know, Imam Shazli. He was there even from Maraqat al Mansura.
0: Yeah, he fought. in one of know. the battles. Yeah.
1: So I mean, that was the, the the battle that repelled the Crusaders for good for centuries after that. Hmm. But yet all of this intellectual and spiritual work was going on at the same time. And they didn't have Google, and they didn't have Zoom, and they didn't have, you know, uh, Internet. Uh, they, they they didn't have electricity. How did these people write? You know, when you think about it, are, you know, to have a lamp and to keep it constantly lit and to, to dip your, you know, your feather pen in the ink and to buy these things, and you didn't have libraries, you had to go... To a copyist, a Warraq would make the copy. Free, and wait, wait a, a couple free.
0: months. till you get your copy of the book yeah. you transcribed? <laughs> and
1: then how many, and how many mistakes were going to be in it when you received it? You know, and then it was probably relatively expensive as well. You know, they said Sheikh Ahmed Zorouk when he died, he only left fourteen books behind. That was his library. So not even you know one half shelf of what's behind. And here. now
0: you make me feel bad. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. I think we have to take, put things in perspective and, and the fact that we're talking to another and we're safe and Alhamdulillah, no is Alhamdulillah. threatening us physically and we don't we're not worried about what we're gonna to eat tomorrow or probably the day after the day after that. This is you know, this is what the Prophet Saryon said. If you have a roof over your head and you have al Yom, you have your daily bread and your uh, your amin fi sarbi no one is threatening you. Can yani, uh, it's like you have all of the dunya. Yeah. So I think we have to kind of, you know, um, this is what the Prophet said as, as, as really al wahan. This is what will come later. The hmm. wahan. They said, Ya Rasul, what do you mean? What is <laughs>
0: we're
1: going to be great numbers, but we're going to be with that sail. You know, like the suds of the, the, the waves that hit the beach. What's wrong with us? <laughs> We love the dunya. We love our creature comforts. We love vying for another. We love having the upper hand. We love to be known. We love people giving us likes and people giving us accolades. And qarahait al-maut doesn't mean that we, um, you know, despise death as in going through that passageway, but the afterlife, like realizing this is just a proving ground and what comes after is the important thing. And we're not, we're not in tune with that concept every day, every moment, every breath. This is the solution. So we just have to remind people, remind ourselves first and foremost.
0: It's a good reminder. Thank you for for that. Uh, You gave me a lot of food for thought. And thank you for agreeing to do this. I know that...
1: My pleasure. I'm glad I did it. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah.
0: Alhamdulillah. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas: happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward/friday to sign up.